There we go. Okay, now it's recording. Well, the good news is that we don't have any uh, any questions to play this week. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it didn't take me very long to listen to all the incoming email because uh, there was only one, and it was a little bit um, what's the word I'm looking for? Meandering. I see. I guess we really are down now just to two listeners. Um, so what should we talk about? Well, we can talk about uh, the progress we've made so far. I also have some pending uh, stuff I want to talk about from previous podcasts. Uh, little, a little bit of trivia. Cool. Um, you asked, and this is truly trivia, you asked about Leonardo DiCaprio in a television show. I yes. looked it up. Oh. I was actually growing growing pains is what you were thinking. What of did I say? Show. Family Ties? I think we were talking about Family Ties. See, I think right. Growing Pains was a Family Ties clone. Like on, based on the success of Family Ties, they made Growing Pains. No, and I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a spinoff so much as a clone, to take right. advantage of the apparent success. And and just to put this in context for people who didn't listen to the other podcast, this was in reference to the whole jumping the shark thing, uh, right. which we had talked about earlier. Um, and one of the strategies for dealing with shows that are jumping the shark is to add a little kid. To the show to you know sort of spice it up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and Leonardo DiCaprio was one of those kids. Yes, he was originally. Uh, the other clarification, and I actually got in trouble with my wife for this, was when we talked about jumping the shark. The actual jumping the shark episode on Happy Days, mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't actually on his motorcycle like I thought. He was actually water skiing, which oh, is okay. why he was wearing shorts. Remember, we were like, "Why would the Fonzie wearing shorts?" <laughs> it's because he was uh, water skiing. So that. I just got in trouble with my wife. She's sort of a, a pup. I, I've never seen that episode, and I used to watch Happy Days all the time, but probably before it jumped the shark. The other funny thing about the whole Jumping the Shark meme is that the show Happy Days, after the Jumping the Shark episode, had a hundred more episodes, which is yeah. a lot, right? So and and they, they all probably made, oh, I don't know, a gazillion dollars yes. after they jumped the shark. Yes, yes, because I think We were talking 100... about that today. The, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, we were talking about that today at lunch about how they have these episodic dramas like The Sopranos and stuff on television, and they're always great the first year, but then they start to kind of stretch it out, and there's just not that much story that you can keep telling lost. And so they tend to get worse and worse in terms of the quality of the story, but they make more and more money because more and more people know about the shows and watch them. Well, 100 shows is the magical syndication point. A lot of shows really kill themselves. Right, for sitcoms, they have to get to 100, yeah. Because yeah. I think they make tons and tons of money once they get into syndication. It's like a whole, it's like a gold medal for them. Yeah, what's going to happen? They haven't been making as many of those like like episodic sitcom type things that can go into syndication. What are the people that want syndicated shows going to going to show? Uh, gosh, I have no idea. I, I try to really limit what I view. I do actually watch quite a bit of television still, um, mm-hmm. but I, I try to really li- limit what I watch because there's so many demands on my attention already. Um, but anyway, just cleaning up on the whole jumping the shark meme because my wife okay. wanted me to do that. So I, I, All right, let's cross that one off. Yes, that is done. So some people have been asking um, – I just got a little Skype notification. That's weird. <laughs> uh, some people have been asking about scheduling, and I want to clarify. I've been telling people six to eight weeks until we get to what we call our private beta of Stack Overflow. Um, okay. So that puts it at – let's see, what is it? It's the middle of May now, so – End of June, early July. Um, mm-hmm. And I've also been getting some very, very nice emails from people that want to help in some way and contribute. And uh, I've been inviting those people into our private beta uh, okay. later on. So, if, if Wait, how do you invite what, – through what mechanism do you invite them into our private beta? Basically, they email me directly. Um, yeah. 
and then I add them to the list. And then oh. six weeks from now, they'll you have like a notepad file type thing. Pretty much, it's just a basic, okay. basic text file. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to manage uh, having a bunch of people contributing at this point because we're still you know in very much the formative stages. But I, I certainly once we get into private beta, I want tons of people to look at it. Uh, and, and provide feedback at that point. So if you can mm-hmm. postpone your desire for about six weeks, uh, we'll get to So how would you get this six to eight weeks? What's this based on? It's this, uh, did you uh, like make a list of tasks that you want to complete? And- uh, no, I, that's just sort of a off the top of my head estimate, <laughs> really. Um, it's based on what Jared... Okay, well, you're doomed, Jeff. There, there's some controversy. <laughs> you, sir, are doomed because because you don't know what things you have to do. Yes, I know. I know. I should be. Ha- I should have a spec. I should have, you know, a burndown chart. I should have Gantt charts. I don't really have any of that stuff. Well, yeah, that's a, that's overkill. You just need a list of things that you have to do. Yes. So you can go into Fogbugs and go make a little new project called Stack Overflow. We, which have, we might have. We we have, yeah. we have we have the Stack Overflow project. That's for sure. Yeah. And then just make a list of tasks. Yes, it's been pretty minimal up to this point in terms of. Uh, actual planning um it's but yeah we're getting to the point where we need to start planning a little bit more about what we're doing yeah you make a list of tasks like 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 one or two day tasks put in one or two day estimates for each of them and then you actually have something that's based on something instead of based on because i can't i mean in six to eight weeks that sounds right to me but i don't even <laughs> i mean yes what's, what's that based on like like the last time we built one of these programming q a websites that's how long it took us because I know, I never... I, and, you know, the last time I built something like this, it took about 72 hours. And that was the, the, the first version of the discussion forums for Joel and Software. Right. I think what happened is we were about to launch Fogbugs 1.0, and we knew that we wanted a place for our beta testers and our users to be able to post questions and get answers. Uh, sort of like a very simple discussion forum. And uh, I, I think I spent like a weekend and I just banged it out because it was so simple. So what you're, what you're saying is I should be able to do this in like a couple days if I was awesome, right? Well, no, because we've also got uh, we've got um, tags that we want to do, uh, right? Because we want to be able to tag articles, and then you want to search for tags, make little tag clouds, that kind of stuff. Uh, we got the the ranking, the voting up and down. That's right. kind of hard. We got to figure out a kind of an efficient way to do that. Right. Yeah. No. There's 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 some there's some parts to it. I mean, that's why I guesstimated it six to eight weeks, but. You know, I just I, I figured the less overhead the better. It's just me and Jared, the only other developer. So, yeah, why complicate it? Um, so that's that's the state of the project. I, I do think, um, based on where Jared and I are, we actually do have logins working. We have account creation working. We have logins created. Um, oh. I think by next week at this time, we might have something for you, Joel, to actually try. I mean, it's going to be pretty minimal. Um, okay, but we did you just use the login provider thing that ASP.NET supports? Uh, no, we kind of rolled our own. Um, to a certain degree, because we just wanted something very minimalistic. We didn't want a lot of overhead and dependencies. I mean, we're, we're trying to be very selective about what dependencies we bring in. I mean, we're already bringing in, you know, ASP.NET MVC and a few other things. Uh, well, this is—I mean, this is just a part of the ASP.NET web forms or something. It's pretty easy. You just take this little login control and you drop it on a page. I added that too. <clears throat> we have this internal Fog Creek control panel thing that our staff uses to. You know, keep track of our customers and all that kind of stuff. And it's uh, you know, as soon as we got past 
10 people, we started needing to have some things that some people are allowed to do and some things that other people aren't allowed to do. Right. And we wanted to hire a bunch of people and give them the capability of issuing refunds. So we wanted to make sure that the refund control panel required a logon. So I added that logon capability to an existing ASP.NET site in you know, a couple of, couple of hours. And it was actually... I happen to just use a LDAP uh, source to decide who is allowed to log on. Mm-hmm. So they just use their Windows password. Um, but it's uh, it's actually kind of trivial to give it um, to 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 just point it to a to a database and tell it to make a user directory, and it'll even make like user management features for you automatically. Although it's like, oh, because there's all these little aspects of like, oh, I forgot my password, and email me a new password, and getting that. Right can be a, kind of tedious. Yeah, the 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 challenge I think is, and, and you mentioned one part of it, which is integration with your existing Windows login, um, which is NTLM. So that's browser yeah. negotiation. Uh, it's LDAP. Yeah. And w- one of the but frustrations it, with that. No, it's not. It's not NTLM. No, no, it's not that. Bra- it's not that. It's not that crazy browser thing where the browser pops up a dialog. No, no, no. There's there's no dialog popping. What I mean is it negotiates. Is, are you talking about negotiation of credentials automatically where? They know you're logged in just by the virtue of the fact you're logged into Windows. That's NTLM. No. It doesn't do that. Okay. Because people, well, you could, but people don't like that because you you have to use IE and it's still going to pop up a dialog box and well, people don't, don't like that. It's just uh, you don't uh, actually no. It's it actually um, it actually the way I've got it set up, it actually gives you a dialog box in HTML form where you type your username and password. So it's not that browser-based authentication; it's just form-based authentication. Oh, okay. So you're using form-based authentication, but for yeah, but this is an app for for you guys internally, though, correct? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it could just use that Intel, but that, but that just just doesn't work as well in Firefox and Safari and stuff. It's just better to yeah. Well, it, it's, it's just, it's just well, that's that's what I was trying to get to. Is it does actually work in Firefox? The problem is Firefox doesn't whitelist anything to do that, whereas IE does. Right. IE says if you're in the intranet zone, you know that whole zone concept they have. Um, yeah, if you're in the intranet zone, it will actually hand NTLM automatically, whereas Firefox won't. So you basically need to build the whitelist in Firefox and say, okay, you can just do star dot star or you know fogbugs dot star. Um, something. Yeah. To the uh, to the ASP dot net team's credit, they understand that people don't like that browser based authentication. And um... well, I I think it works well in an intranet scenario. It just breaks down completely on the web. So if your product, I mean, if this is something you guys are going to use internally, that's that's. I would actually use the NTLM auth because it's just less for you to do, right? I mean, you just use the app and it magically works, which is pretty uh, cool. But in the open what happens, internet... What happens if you try to store like a cookie? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sick. Bah. <laughs> um, what, uh, isn't there some kind of issue where every time you come back, you get that dialogue popping up and you have to... No. Save your username and password. Uh, no, right, NTLM works really well. I mean, it's just you, you've got to be very strict about it. You can never go across an open internet at any point. Otherwise, it's just a big pain in the butt. But if, I mean, that's the, and to me, this is the big conundrum with Microsoft is so much of their stuff is really designed to be sold to corporations. Like NTLM is a classic example. It works really, really well in the context of, you know, specific organizations that have an infrastructure. Um, and actually, you know, in, in my previous life, I used to be a, a team system MVP, and, and team system is developed exactly the same way. You can see from day one that Microsoft assumed that everybody that uses team system is going to yeah. be on a network where they have Active Directory and they're going to have Windows credentials, and that's how you're going to access the system. Even the command line stuff that they do uses your Windows login, right? 
wow. which yeah. is convenient sometimes, and then like a giant, huge pain in the ass at other times, right? Right. <laughs> because right, for right. the people at Redmond, they're always on Active Directory. They're, this is how they work. Um, and it's actually – the truth is it's actually sometimes it's a pain in the ass in the other direction, which is like the uh, other non-Microsoft companies sometimes like kind of refuse to get with the NTLM, NTLM program. Right. In a frustrating way, and you're winding up having to maintain thousands of passwords and log on to them all separately in different ways. But but it is interesting because the NTLM discussion does, I think, hinge on a key aspect of Microsoft's strategy in that they really are beholden to a lot of these big companies because it's where a lot of their money comes from, too. If you've ever, like, uh, and again, in my previous job, I worked pretty closely with the Microsoft sales team. And these are guys that get paid based on, you know, how many corporate, essentially corporations or, you know, mid-sized to small businesses um, mm-hmm. actually buy the Microsoft software. So they do whatever it takes to make the software sell into the organization. And what those organizations want, and this is in contrast with the Apple model, which is very much individual consumer oriented. I mean, Apple isn't going to, you know, large companies and saying, having salespeople call them and say, you know, what can we do to get, you know, OS 10 in your organization? It just yeah, they used happen. to a long time ago, but they've just lost. They just lost. But it, it's it, yeah. but it's totally tied to to the revenue stream of the company in a very intimate way because of the mm-hmm. sales staff and everything else. So it's it's kind of baked into some of the products, and and it's frustrating too because I know some of the teams try to satisfy both audiences, right? But they have to satisfy these big money contracts, these salespeople that make huge amounts of money selling, you know, the product into large companies. Yeah, and that's just basically because co- companies have money and and they will spend it, and oh, end users absolutely. Don't. And actually, end users are always looking for the cheapest way they can do things. And it was interesting. I don't know if you saw this. There was a talk by David Hanemeyer Hansen. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Um, where he was talking. You about, say that about everybody. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a general disclaimer I use because I tend to mispronounce things. So I, <laughs> his name his name is pronounced dude. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, exactly. So I, I like to put the disclaimer out there because I have a history of mispronouncing things a lot. I think it's because I, I grew up in an area that was somewhat rural, and I, I, I read a lot. And I didn't hear people using the words that I was reading, so I kind of uh-huh. had to imagine what they would sound like. And I think that yeah. got, at some point, just, you know, it part of became second nature for me to just pronounce things however I thought they should be pronounced and not look them up. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, getting back to, to David's talk. Yeah, it's definitely David. Yes, it's definitely pronounced David. <laughs> I'll just use the first part of his name. Uh, what, this was thing, at startup school. This talk you're yes, talking about? Yeah, it was a good yeah. talk because he, he just talked about you know basically getting people to pay you, right? Charging money for your service, which you know if you look at sort of the Google model, it is you know everything's advertising subsidized. So in a sense, what they're doing at 37 Signals is pretty far apart from what Google is doing. I mean, they're saying well, our product wait. is good, you pay for it, and you get it, right? The uh. uh yeah, I mean, advertising is, a, is an unusual kind of business in which the, the some of the benefit is provided to somebody who's not paying the money, really, or there's sort of a, a third party that gets kind of, which is the cost the customer, the Google search engine users, who get something for free because the corporations are paying for the advertising. But I mean, the truth is, it was sort of an interesting talk. On the other hand, it's kind of pathetic that somebody needs to stand up at startup school and tell people that they need to charge for the products <laughs> and that that then becomes controversial. Well, like how, how stupid are these people starting companies that they don't think that they have to charge somebody for something. And <laughs> we, I say, because we haven't really revealed the stack stack overflow is sort of an advertising based 
yes. model we don't want to try. And also, we're not uh, – we have almost no expenses and et cetera. But uh, um, the, you know, the important thing to remember is that uh, uh, businesses will spend money and consumers won't. You just yes. have to start with that. And that and was that was David's point. That was it. and that that was really interesting to me because it ties into what Microsoft does. They sell hugely into corporations. I mean, it's got to be a huge percentage of their income. That's because that's because when you're a company, uh, first of all, you you have money. Secondly, it's not your money. But most importantly, even if you are being rational, spending the company's money, which is not yours, um, uh, e- even if you are being sort of rational, um, the a, a company will spend money on fixed costs. Right, you know how every company has fixed costs and variable costs, and the fixed costs are things that they have to buy one of no matter what, like a factory or an office, and the variable costs are things that they have to pay one of for every customer that they get. Like if you're buying laptops, then a fixed cost is the design of the laptop, but the variable cost is the keyboard and the screen and the the various parts and the labor that goes into the manufacture of each laptop. And those fixed costs you spread out amongst all the units that you sell. So with me so far? Yes. So, uh, so if you're a company, um, in, uh, spending on fixed costs is something that can be spread out over all of those units. And if you're a fairly successful company selling a large number of products, uh, that may wind up adding almost nothing to the cost of the product. So anything that's a fixed cost, businesses are generally willing to spend on. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to go too far because if you have to spread out some huge fixed cost over a very small number of customers, you're not going to want to do that. But on the other hand, something like, you know, like the Apple model is to design really good products. They spend a lot of money on the design uh, up front, which is something that Dell doesn't do because they want the design to be really good because that sells more units. And designing is a fixed cost. They only have to design once no matter how many units they sell. So in general, businesses are surprisingly happy to spend on fixed costs. They don't like to spend on variable costs. They generally want to use cheap parts because they don't want to drive up the price of all their units because then their individual units become more expensive and the consumers won't buy them because consumers are ridiculously stingy. Right. Now, what consumers will spend on is a whole different story. Consumers will spend on things that they're used to spending on, but almost all consumers are going to want those to be priced at kind of a commodity price where there's almost no room for profit. Like they're really like a consumer, an end user consumer. Most end consumers are not going to spend more than the minimum commodity price for most of the things that they buy. And the exception is luxury goods, like certain things that they consider a luxury good, whether it's a latte or jewelry or a really cool flat screen TV uh, or, or whatever, you know, or an Apple iBook or something. Uh, if it's uh, if it's a, uh, a MacBook, sorry, they don't make iBooks anymore. If it's a luxury. Um, if it's a uh, a luxury good, then they will spend more than than just what it's actually worth, and that's the only way you can make a profit off of a consumer. You can't really make profit off of consumers if you sell them things at the commodity price because you're selling it at the price that it costs you to make, like everybody else, and you're scavenging to try to find two or three cents and make it up in volume. That's something that's practically impossible for startups to do. Uh, whereas if you're selling a luxury good, then you can charge significantly more than the good actually costs because there's some some appeal, some luxury appeal to this product. Well, what, what uh, would you define as luxury on the web? I mean, certainly what I got from David's talk, and he was very clear on this point, was that you have to sell to businesses if you want to make a lot of money, which is the same thing I'm hearing from you, is that consumers really aren't going to flock to whatever nope. service it is you're selling online. Because, nope. And I think part of the problem and what you're getting at uh, I'll tell you, the only luxury good I can think of on the web, and I'll, I'll come up with some more, but uh, um, JDate. <laughs> it's, a, it's the Jewish dating website. Nice. 
It's a it's a slight luxury product over Match.com or whatever the other one's called. Isn't that what people use uh, Facebook for? For the whole hookup, the whole dating thing, isn't that? Yeah, no, not so much. I think uh, JJ. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so pretty much, dating sites would be the only luxury you can think of off the top of your head. Jewish dating sites. Jewish specialized. Dating. The regular the regular dating sites are commodities. You gotta have. Uh, yeah, I and mean, that's I, I, I could, I'll probably come up with some more examples if I think hard enough about it. But there's not that many luxury products on the on. There are you know luxury retailers that sell through the web. Right. Um, but um, when you think about. Uh, 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 a luxury product, even in the consumer market, forget the web now for a minute. Think about um, Abercrombie and Fitch is a luxury product. They sell a pair of jeans that cost them the same, you know, forty-eight cents to manufacture in India or Vietnam uh, as Old Navy. But instead of selling them for twenty dollars, they sell them for I don't know how much are Abercrombie jeans? Seventy dollars? I have no idea. Hundred dollars. Um, and uh, in order to create a luxury product in 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 um, fashion, the fashion industry. You have to establish a brand name so that the people wearing that product will feel extra cool or will look extra cool to their friends, and so that's also a fixed cost, incidentally. So the way that uh, the way that a, a fashion retailer will establish that brand name is that they'll buy all kinds of advertising with good-looking models, and they'll try to get celebrities to wear their clothes, and they'll do all kinds of things to try to associate their particular product with uh, a high-end thing because they're still selling you the same product everybody else is with maybe a slightly different look that is perceived to be better. But in order to make it a luxury product, they also have to create this brand allure, the luxury brand allure, which they spend a lot of money on advertising to create that luxury brand allure. And it's not to create awareness. Like the reason that there's a Prada ad in the fancy magazines with it smell like perfume is uh, not because you've never heard of Prada. But because they want you to start to associate Prada with high-end luxurious type things in your mind. And so they're using that money basically to buy uh, this – not brand awareness really, but brand positioning, a positioning that, that allows them to be a luxury product and to charge more for their product than the commodity price for a limited number of people. Right, and certainly when I think of luxury, I do not think of online services at all, with the possible exception of the dating services that you mentioned. No. even I mean, in the computer industry, we have very few. Apple is a luxury product. They charge a couple hundred dollars more for every computer than, than the uh, IBM equivalent, and it, it's a luxurious product, slightly, slightly better workmanship, slightly better finish, and uh, a, a, an allure, the branding that they've created with the Switchers campaign to try to make you think that you're the cool, scrawny dude who doesn't quite know how to shave every day yet. Right, but that, that's still, of the tubby. That's, still <laughs> that's still hardware though. I mean, I'm not, I'm talking about yeah. just purely stuff delivered online. Sure. Right. I mean, uh, no yeah, atoms. stuff. To, I can probably think of some luxury software products. Um, maybe Aperture instead of uh, as opposed to iPhoto, which is and they sometimes you can get your luxury appeal by pretending to be professional by being sort of prosumer. Mhm. Um, like those 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 thousand dollar cameras, which are like a little bit too complicated, and they look kind of geeky. And they're not luxurious in the sense that it's leather. They're luxurious in the sense that they appear to be a professional product, sort of like a Hummer appears to be a professional vehicle that you would use for, um, you know, fighting wars or something. Right. Instead of what it really is for, which is going to the supermarket. So that's sort of one. You know, that's an example of one way you might create this luxury. Luxury appeal. So now I really should rack my brain and try to think about if there's anything on the web. But the truth is that the web is a media media outlet, and and media is just media. It's not really. Uh, well, it's more akin to the the magazines that you talked about, right? Which are right. obviously yep. ad subsidized. I mean, even if you pay, you know, four dollars or five dollars for a copy of Vogue or what have you, 
I mean, the thing is, you know, 30% ads or more. I mean, it's actually Absolutely. astonishing. And if you actually, yeah. Most people are probably paying a dollar for Vogue because they have subscriptions. Right. And the dollar barely pays for the postage. So it is definitely ad-supported. And, uh, and, so, and obviously Google is ad-supported. And so that's a different model where um, what you're doing is selling uh, to businesses uh, who uh, are willing to pay money. Instead of selling to consumers, and you're disguising yourself as a consumer business, but you really aren't. You're really a business business, and that's sort of this funny advertising model where you get somebody else to pay uh, for what the people get for free, right? And so I think uh, David uh, at Startup School might have been like a little bit disingenuous because the truth is that the people that are making these business models uh, of free um, usually have a slightly more complicated business model and model in mind of free and advertiser supported in some way. And unfortunately, Google kind of the, the success of Google and the story that everybody knows about how Google decided to build eyeballs first and figure out how to monetize it later. That that success story kind of gave people permission to not worry about how to monetize it. Mm-hmm. And I think Facebook is kind of a good example of that of somebody that that that, that felt like, oh, let's not worry about how to monetize it. Let's just get the scale because if you get the scale, you're definitely going to be able to monetize it somehow. Well, I think at Facebook scale, you might be able to. But that's one of the interesting things about AdSense. And I've yeah. dipped my feet into AdSense. I have this other site, uh, fakeplasticrock.com, and I started mm. playing with AdSense because on, on Coding Horror, um, the advertisers actually approached me. So there was no man in the middle. It was It's me interacting directly with the advertiser, um, which is nice. I mean, it's a great model if you can get it. Um, Fake Plastic I, Rock. Oh, my God. Yeah. This so, is your site? Yeah. So rock, I have a little bit of – Rock Band, Guitar Hero. Yes. <laughs> I have a little bit of an obsession with uh, fake plastic musical instruments. I don't know. I I, I really love music. So. Oh, that kind of rock. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought it was rocks, like like stones. No, 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 no. As in rock music. Uh, FakePlasticRock.com. Yeah. So that AdSense. was the first time I had I had worked with AdSense, and it's amazing yeah, how little like how yeah. little you actually make from AdSense. So there's two, there's two problems with AdSense. One is you have to have huge scale to make money with AdSense. I mean, huge. Even on Coding Horror, which gets a lot of traffic, um, I actually hooked up the Google search um, engine because the mm-hmm. built-in search that I have is not very good anyway, and I figured I might mm-hmm. as well. So I was hooking it up, and you actually. I'm, relative to how much I make for my advertisers, it's just noise. It's it's not even really worth uh, talking about. Yeah, um, I know. Uh, well, I think AdSense didn't work. Yeah. So I think you have to be almost be – this is scary, but I think you almost have to be at the Facebook level to, to have AdSense actually work for you to make – like. But it doesn't work at Facebook either. I mean they're doing their own thing, and Microsoft is running their advertising. At Facebook, I think. Oh, sure, sure, um, sure. I mean, and they're, they're, making, they're making some money, but it's nowhere close to what they're spending. And uh, I, I, I think that you know the reputation of Facebook is that they get horrible click-through rates. And I think that's the part of the reason is that the reason advertising works on Google, which is just about the only place it works, is that when you're searching for you know Guitar Hero guitars that you can buy, mm-hmm. you, you're you're willing to go to an advertiser site if it's going to try to sell you a Guitar Hero guitar. It's related to what you're doing. I mean, it makes yeah. It's, it's actually what you want to do, right? Whereas in Facebook, you're trying to get a date, you're trying to send some messages, you're trying to check your 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 email, you're trying to update your wall, you're trying to um, what else can you do? Throw throw penguins at your friends or whatever. You do it is zombie attacks and vampire yeah, attacks. Exactly, and terrible. you do not at that point want to rent zombie movies, and you're just not that, those things are distractions. And so the, the the number of clicks that they actually get on ads in Facebook, besides the fact that it's a younger audience that's remarkably immune to advertising. Well, not only that, but I mean, 
ad block. I mean, I, I noticed when you yeah. uh, on, on the Fogbugs World Tour, you had ad block installed, and I have it installed too because not because I hate the sites I'm going to and I don't want them to make money, but because the ads are so invasive. Like this is uh, yeah, you know, you know why I, put, I finally installed ad block. Um, and and it's not I'm I'm perfectly willing to support advertising based based websites with ads, but they sort of abused my trust. And what and and the way they did that is by having these animated ads. And when when you're trying to read text and there's something animated in the corner of your eye, right. your eye is designed to to look at that thing. You've evolved over five million years. You've evolved so that if there's a tiger moving in your peripheral vision, you will look at the tiger because that's a really good idea. And so that's something that's very fundamental in your brain and the way your eye works. And indeed, that is why they're animating their ads, because they want you to look at them. But when you're trying to read text... Yeah, that or it's an attractive person, right? I mean, (laughs) you can't not look at an attractive person on your screen. Yeah, but at least you can stop... Yeah, exactly. I guess an attractive person you can't. Anyway, whatever they've done there, uh, it's trying to attract your eye, but you do also want to read the text. And so in order to keep your eye focused on the text while there's this flashing thing in the side, takes a uh, significant amount of cognitive effort. It takes... Like almost physical effort to keep your eye there. I don't want to say you're burning calories, but it does give you a headache, and it it does sort of drive you crazy. And this is something that you know. Um, what's your name? The uh, blogger about uh, Kathy Sierra. Sierra used to talk about all the time, mm-hmm. which is that your brain is just designed to look at that moving thing to see what's weird in this environment, and trying to force it not to do that actually is is, is painful. And so. Uh, um, uh, you know these things would drive me crazy, and I'd find that I couldn't read articles and concentrate on them unless I scrolled whatever part was flashing off screen. And eventually, the the, the advertisers just did not stop, and I gave up and uh, uh, installed AdBlock Plus and dealt with them all. Right, and it's weird because I, I've gotten so used to surfing with AdBlock on now that when I when I turn it off or I'll occasionally go into IED yeah. or something and I forget that I don't have AdBlock, I'm like, wow, there's all this junk that's cluttering on the site. <laughs> it looks actually so much cleaner. It's uh, there's so such yeah. a lack of restraint and respect in, in advertising, and, and certainly when I mm-hmm. took on advertising at Coding Horror, I said, how can I do this the right way? And I think if you do it the right way. Uh, it, it doesn't bother people, and it can actually be somewhat respectful of your audience. But there's so many people just abusing it that, like, you have to use this nuclear bomb of the, you know, right. the ad block, and it's unfair. It's unfortunate um, because you know a lot of sites that is how they make money. And I think particularly uh, if you're you have a site that that's a very tech savvy audience, I think a very high percentage of them are going to be running ad block anyway. So if you sure. if you theoretically had any common ad service, it's going to be blocked right out of the gate. That's that's even more of a reason to actually take on your own advertising and serve up ads from your own domain because those are going to. And be- what's interesting is that uh, yeah, well, those will eventually if 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 they're identifiable, if the URL is identifiable in some way, and enough people go to your site, then it'll get added to the ad block list. But what's interesting is that the ad ad block has never added the, the Google search result ads are never blocked, and you know partially it's because they're inline, you know, it's just inline HTML. But they could figure out a way to block those if they wanted to. You know, they could get special case Google. But I think they honestly think that those ads are kind of useful. Well, have you looked at the the actual way AdBlock work? It's pretty primitive. It's basically just regex applied to URL domains. I mean, which means yeah. if you're blocking within a domain, you have to be very very careful because if I put my ads in a folder that's not called ads, yeah, it's going to be tough for you to block them using just basic regexes. So yeah, but in ten minutes, somebody could write AdBlock code that says if it's this regex. Then just hide the div. You know, there's there's some there's some easily easy to find div on the Google results page that has the ads in it. But I think you'd have to be one of the top two or three hundred sites on the web to to get that treatment. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, as but, much but as Google I, is, and they have not gotten that treatment, which means that even the people that think that you should block all ads are willing to live with Google's ads, and they actually think that they're probably more good than bad. And I, you know, I click on those ads, and the only ads I ever click on are Google search result ads, because sometimes you're looking for something kind of shady. Right. You want to buy something. Not not the thing is shady, but there are a lot of shady players in certain businesses. Um, trying to think of what a good example. Um <laughs> Breast enlargement. I don't know. There's, there's some <laughs> so these are the kinds that. of things you're searching for, just you know, random. Uh, I'm trying to remember. So those you're searching for something, and you get kind of a lot of spammers, yeah. you know, SEO optimizers, and just kind of shady operators at the top. And the people that actually paid for an ad for a banner ad on Google in the search results are actually the slightly more legitimate players, mm-hmm. the organic ones. Right. And so you almost want to say, hey, you guys are willing to pay to advertise to me. That means that you probably have a slightly less than completely scammy product. Yes. Uh, so, so sometimes, sometimes those the paid search results in Google are a little bit better. Right. Yeah. No, that, that's a that's a great point. And in, in my previous example, when I talked about how much I made from AdSense on coding horror, um, that was search results. So that's a best case scenario for yeah for oh, ad okay. income, and it's still just totally nothing compared to negotiating yeah. directly with the advertisers. So you have to yeah, be really careful. The advertisers, really, the advertisers don't really know what they're <laughs> what they're getting or. Yeah. Sometimes they're just supporting the business. Sometimes they don't really know what they get. There's some, uh, you know, you really have to be providing. A, it has to be highly targeted. It has to be a, you know, real benefit to the people. Well, that's one reason I hope uh, with Stack Overflow. I mean, all the information is sort of by definition highly targeted because the whole reason you'd come to the site, really, I, I imagine ninety percent of the people that come to the site would be looking for a specific answer to a specific problem that they have. Um, mm-hmm. And I think even the contextual, uh, not that we're going to use AdSense necessarily, but I think if, if we did use AdSense, I think it would be reasonable because it's going to be very similar to search results at that point. I mean, we're going to be a search results page targeted to what they're trying to do. Possibly. And you could even, I mean, we could probably come up with our own kind of ad scheme. I mean, it's not in the official business plan, but I mean, let's say that, you, you know, you, you've got the, the concept of, uh, I don't know, SQL compare. How do I compare two SQL schemas and find out what the changes are? Well, right. there's a great product that does that. And maybe the person who makes that product is willing to advertise on that page that has that answer, uh, where you know basically it's the most possible, it's the it's the most highly targeted audience they could possibly ask for. The leads are extremely qualified; they are specifically looking for something that that, that Redgate's products specifically do. Right? Because how often do you go to Facebook with a specific thing in mind, a specific question? No, a specific thing to yeah, or a specific thing where you're willing to pay money to solve a specific problem. Almost never. never. You're just like hanging out, chilling yep. with your friends online. That's got to yeah, be incredibly difficult to target. I mean, it's got to be impossible so, to target. Besides which, the Facebook is just a big gigantic. Oh, what's my phone telling me? Facebook is just a big gigantic CIA scam to collect data about who knows whom, so they can figure out who's in all the terrorist cells and stuff. When they arrest a terrorist, they can find out who all his friends are and how he knows them and who his other friends are. And well, I always felt the sites like that. I mean, a friend of mine used to talk to a lot of venture capitalists here on Sand Hill Road, the big Silicon Valley one. And he said one of them had this this saying that he was very fond of that. Basically, the way services like this make money is there's two ways. They either get you paid or they get you laid, right? <laughs> and that's that's pretty much how it works. And for Facebook, I'm that's like, uh, you know that was uh, uh, I don't know who originally said that said that, but uh, it's really uh, 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 Jamie Zawinski at Netscape who who, who had that concept. Ah, like yes. you, if you're gonna make a website, you you have to either tell me how it's gonna get me some money or how it's gonna get me laid. Exactly. And so maybe people would pay to use Facebook. Yeah, I don't know. I, I personally don't 
use Facebook, so it's hard for me to insert myself into that world. Ah. And you want me to use Twitter. Well, but Twitter, I Facebook. think, is, is really, really different. I actually – I would encourage you. I, I can't make you do anything, obviously. Let's look. Let's uh, look. No, you can't. Uh, let's look at your Twitter page, twitter.com slash codinghorror. Yep. Let's see what you got up there right now. <laughs> well, I was talking a little bit about one of my frustrations with uh, Firefox, which is – I am going to the bathroom now. The, <laughs> crap, not- the, the poop is coming out now. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you're referencing the class. Flushing. The Penny Arcade <laughs> – Penny Arcade cartoon, which I'll have to link up in the in the post. Now. Uh, but uh, what I was talking about, about half the things that you have up here are directed at people that I, and I, so I don't get these conversations. Well, not half. Well, okay, here's what it's like. It's like being at a dinner party. Okay, you're walking yeah. around. You know me, right? But you don't know these other people I'm talking to. But the cool thing is, in the Twitter, you you can sort of see the conversation, follow it, and actually you know start talking to the other people if you want to. And it's great. I mean. I don't know how to describe it. It's really strange. I know it seems like a really useless service, a service, and I know I sound well. Like here, you're somebody that I actually like. I actually am interested in knowing what you're doing, so I'd I might follow you on Twitter, right? And but it's telling me Ant is against human rights. LOL. Oh, commenters, you bring the funny. <laughs> Ant. Ant is a build. Uh, yeah. How self. is it against human rights? Well, you have to follow my blog. So there's some context here. So assuming if you're following me, you would read my blog, which you haven't been, obviously. <laughs> No, yeah, uh, I have. You're talking about putting keyboards in the dishwasher, and you got a really messy baby here. Yes, I hope that's. Good. And uh, prior to that, but I was talking about it, one of the problems with XML, and a lot of people consider Ant like a oh, poster yeah. child for abuse of XML. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that XML was really designed for markup, i.e., taking text and adding markup to it. So it's not designed to be an efficient way to store data structures. It's kind of a mess when you use it for data structure. But that's what ninety percent of what, you know in, in Visual Studio. That's ninety percent of what I do right. with XML is I store configuration files and you know mar- crazy markup I don't even want to see, and it's all data, right? Well, what happened is that they they everybody suddenly realized that uh, if you have a um, it, you know if if we all use the same method, no matter how stupid, to store our configuration files. And especially if it's human readable, then you don't have to write that code every time for configuration files. I mean, if you look at the classic Unix utilities, they all have their own file format, and they all have code to parse it. And they all have their own rules about how you escape a special character, and how you put a quote inside a quote, and how you um, continue a line on the next line, and how you put a comment in there. And they all have their own rules for that, and they've all written their own parsers for that, which have many bugs. And um, it's just a big mess. But you know, as soon as XML came out, Every, just the very fact that everybody agreed on it, on using XML, even if it wasn't the ideal format, meant that um, we got all these libraries that we could use from our programming languages, and we could stop worrying about what the actual file format was. We could just say, here, take this structure and put it in that file and leave me alone, uh, or, or load the structure from that file. Right. And, and, and I don't think you're really meant to even look at the text of the file. I mean, I think you're probably meant to, to – I mean, you can edit the t- the, an XML file in a text editor, but I think the original vision was kind of that there would be these nice XML editors, of which there are surprisingly few. Well, yeah, that's my problem. I mean, so you really end up with XML – looking at it almost all the time and it makes it's just so frustrating because you know in our current stack overflow project there's you know of course uh, web.config right that's one of the master files on asp.net and i hate reading web config there's actually not that much information in it but the formatting is just it it makes my head hurt every time i look at it and every time i look at it, i think god there's got to be a better way to represent this you know, is there not a GUI? Does Visual Studio not have a web.config GUI editor? I guess it doesn't. I'm always well. There. there are some, but it's mixed because there's you know, web.config is a 
sort of mm-hmm. like the registry in Windows, right? I mean, it's pretty much the place a lot of stuff just ends up. <laughs> and yeah. for some, you know, like Word, I'm sure puts it. What happens if stuff. you load it up in? Uh, have you ever used one of those tools like uh, XML Spy or one of those XML editors? XML Spy, I think, was the biggest one. What's that really going to give you? Just like an Excel type view of it? I mean, without uh, maybe you no, don't have see no, the end tags? No, I think you see like a tree. Uh, yeah, I think you see it as a tree. You don't see any of the tags, and also it well, knows. Wait, wait, wait. It looks at the TTD, so it knows like what things can go inside, what other things. So it lets you instead of having to just type something, it gives you the equivalent of IntelliSense, where you can. Uh, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. I've no, no, no. I, actually, you're you're on the right track. And when I wrote that post, I tried to be clear that you know I don't think XML is evil. I just think that. Particularly in the Windows ecosystem with Visual Studio, it's become the go-to standard. Like, if you have any kind of data that you want to store, you in a file that's somewhat human-readable, then you use XML. And I'm not really sure that's the right attitude we should have towards it. I think XML solves a specific set of problems, like particularly hierarchy. Like you mentioned, tree. First of all, I hate trees. Like, I think trees are. I mean, they're necessary in a computer science standpoint, yeah. but from a usability and a user standpoint, trees are like the worst thing you can put on the screen. So when you said, hey, you get a tree, I'm like, that's not a plus, that's a minus. <laughs> I don't really yeah. want to see you know, a 10-layer deep tree of, of junk. Uh, yeah, a clean text file would be nicer. Yeah, so I, I mean... I'm no, not, I definitely not, agree that I'm for not, the types of data structures that you would use uh, uh, YAML or, or, or JSON or something for, uh, it, it winds up being significantly cleaner. Yes, um, which is and and you know the other weird thing about uh, XML is that it doesn't even like have a consistent way to do certain things like deciding whether something should be an attribute. Let's say that you have a, a name value kind of situation where the you know the name is uh, price and the value is one hundred dollars. It's not even clear if you're supposed to say you know product price equals one hundred and put that in an attribute or say product and then open a new tag called price. Like there there isn't XML is just not consistent about that. You can do either. Right. Yeah, uh, I think XML raises so as many questions. It's clearly not designed for that. It's really designed just to be for markup, like like HTML. I mean, it's great for HTML. Yes. There were so many. Uh, and, and you know what? The truth is that before HTML, there are these things like RTF, and there's so many kind of textual-based attempts to represent slightly rich text or text where some of the text may have various attributes and may be nested. And uh, there have been many attempts to do this, and half the time there are these ad hoc file formats that are invented by somebody who doesn't really think think through all the issues, especially of escaping and stuff like that, uh, escaping character sets, um, validation, testing for validity. And uh, XML at least gives you a default option now, which we never used to have, where those issues have been thought through. So even if you are too stupid to know a single thing about Unicode, as, as many people – you know, the truth is that the, the early days of the RSS spec, you know, the, those early specs were written saying it's a plain text XML file without saying anything about character set. Right. And in fact, the examples did not actually mention an encoding, and that should have made the spec incorrect or invalid or, or wrong when faced with – uh, Unicode data or data in other character sets. Uh, and yet, um, because everybody who used XML and knew about Unicode knew about character set encoding and knew how XML handled character, character set encoding, it was possible for you know Dave Weiner and the early my.netscape people in def- defining those formats to actually remain completely blithely ignorant of character set and encoding issues and still come out with a file format that allowed you to use to get the character set and encoding things right. So... That's kind of a nice advantage. Right, because I think if you – say you had like a file in Notepad, like truly a plain text file. There's that byte – ah. 
It, but, but no, no. Hear, hear me out. What I'm saying okay. is, this you is mean, part of the oh, you problem. mean you mean Windows 1252? Well, right, because there's there's no encoding information like a text file. Like, how do you know what the encoding is for a text file? Where is that information uh, stored? Uh, I can tell you that. It depends. Well, usually it has to be out, out of band. It has to be in a. Well, but it depends. That's what I'm, that's like HTML can carry it in band using the HTTP equiv. Um, but usually it has to be out of band. And in fact, the way Notepad knows, if you're asking that specific question, is that it does a statistical analysis of the text and uh, uses that to try to guess the character set encoding based on the statistical occurrence of various bytes. Right. And that gives it a particular profile. And there's actually, it's kind of interesting. Somebody has an example uh, sentence somewhere. Have you seen yes. this on the internet? That's what it's I was It's a sentence you could type into Notepad. And when you open it the next time in Notepad, you get like four Chinese characters. Because right. it happens to be statistically, it happens to trick that algorithm. So that's a really bad algorithm. Right, right. But that was, that was my point is that I'm trying to provide support for your point, which is that at least in XML you have this tag that explicitly says this is the encoding, right, of this yeah. XML. Whereas with a plain text file, you have to come up with some scheme, and the notepad right. scheme of guessing kind of sucks. So I, I get that part of it. And uh, I wasn't trying to present it as, you know, here, XML is bad. Let's all switch to the this new thing that all the you know, no. Ruby guys are using. But why don't we think about what we're doing, which is sort of the general theme of a lot of stuff in my blog, is can we just think about this and, and not make a blind choice based on, well, this is what my tool does, so that's what I have to do, right? I don't even want to yeah. learn anything about any other it sort of depends. I mean, if I've got a bunch of data structures, I'm writing some C-sharp code. I've got a bunch of data structures. I want to persist them to a text file that people can edit and write. Uh, why think about it? Why not just use the XML serialization objects and just be like, done? Well, because I haven't thought about it. That works. Well, well let me give yeah. you an example. I, I know it's written in stone at this point. So I mean, I, I'll think about things that are important, like you know, like like things that are really like. Let's say I'm inventing a programming language. Well, then I'm not going to use XML as the syntax because that's the most important thing about my programming language. But if it's just, if it's just like how to persist some interesting data structure that I've created in C-sharp into a file that nobody has to read, I just have to be able to load it again later. You know, why, why spend even a minute thinking about this when I can think about something that's more core to my product? Yeah, well, sure. I mean, it's, it's, that's an argument that you can pursue down the rabbit hole. I don't know how far you want to go, but to, to me, it matters. Isn't that what we do here? <laughs> but every time, every time I look at web config, there's a mental cost of me having to parse all these stupid tags mentally, right? Like, oh, here's this yeah. end tag. Here's this giant verbose thing of which only 10% of this actually matters. I mean, what's the mental cost of that times number of developers in the world times number of, of projects in the world? I mean, I think this stuff matters. And you could also find people that will They'll develop a website, and they will never view source on it. Like They don't really care what the markup looks like as long yeah. as the rendered result is good. I, I philosophically disagree with that. I think It depends on the situation. Come on. If you're making a website, if your grandma calls you up and needs a real quick HTML page to sell uh, you know, her couch for Craig Craigslist, and she wants just like some formatting and some pictures and stuff like that, who cares what the, XML, what the HTML looks like? Well, I, I I care. I mean, in this case, it's Stack Overflow. So, I mean, I, I'm going to view... Wait, well, that's different. Yeah, okay. Stack Overflow is like your main work. It's your main... But here, you're just trying to make the little web page for your grandma. Who cares? You know, well, I think it really just depends on the situation. And I think you, you can spend time worrying about things where they really matter. Now, let me make a... Just while I'm while I'm counterpoint arguing, I mean, web, web config... I mean, you could use YAML for web config, but uh, XML is far better known than YAML. And so, if it's in XML... Uh, 98% of those developers who go in there and look at it and try to edit it are going to be like, yeah, it sucks, but at least I know what it's doing. Whereas they're going to look in YAML and they're going to be like, what are those little dashes? And what does it mean when there's like a little star in front of something or a little ampersand in front of something? I don't know what that is. I don't know YAML. Now I have to go learn it. So 
a lot of times doing what people already know instead of doing what's better is 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 helpful. Sure, it's a trade-off. It's but like QWERTY it's, versus Dvorak keyboards. Yeah, but but my audience is is primarily software developers, right? So I, I kind of hold them to a little bit of a higher standard than you know random people creating websites. Sure, for if you know if my wife is creating a website, then I don't expect her to view source and care that all the tags yeah. are closed and that we're not using inappropriate tables, we're using divs and. Modern. But if you if you call up your wife and it's an emergency and she has to go into your web doc config and make some last minute change and you're like on the ski slopes and so you don't even can't even use your your Windows uh, mobile telephone to get on there and you just have to tell her to, to, to log on to the website and edit the web config file and she happens to know XML from somewhere else because it's kind of a standard that everybody learns uh, then at least she's got a hope of doing it whereas if it were in YAML she'd be like mm, uh oh new thing to learn. Emergency. Right. Well, you could make that argument about like new programming languages and anything new. I just, I yeah. to me, I don't know. Everything I, new is bad. Yeah. So I, I think that obviously there's pros and cons to each. I'm not saying that one is the right solution all the time, but I think ironically that is what's happening with XML. People view it as like, okay, it's always the right answer because it can store anything, right? And all the stuff I use uses it, so it must be the right choice. And that, that bothers me a little. Maybe I'm just contrarian. Maybe I'm iconoclast, and I want to try different things and see different things. But I think actually understanding the alternatives helps you understand XML better a little bit, I think, too. It's like, sure. what, what is it good at? What is it not good at? And, and to me, XML is the god language. You're just going to have to get used to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, so, so, so just coming... accept the divinity of XML. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I'm getting standard, at. Just understand um, the, the pantheon of gods that live with XML. So I'm going to. It's pop- actually shocking in certain circumstances how much better JSON is than XML. Well, uh, yeah. So, for example, if you need to get some quick data back from the server uh, into JavaScript from you know, in an AJAX like programming scenario, right? JSON is just so tiny and so fast and so easy. Right. And I, I hope people reading my blog would not get the idea that, you know. You should have a knee-jerk reaction of, I don't want to use what's popular, or I always want to use what's popular. I mean, it's always about understanding the trade-offs and applying those trade-offs to your particular situation. I think that is the absolute art of programming, right? It's understanding what you could do and which which one you think fits your situation best versus what so many programmers do, which is, I've learned to use a hammer, and I'm going to hammer everything, right? Yeah. And that, to me, is it's about self-awareness, and, and that's the theme that's what- of a lot of my stuff. That's what distinguishes the program, the good programmers, the 14 of you who listen to this podcast. That's right. And actually about their tools and want to learn new ways of doing things. And uh, from the people who are just like, you know, when it works, I can go home. And so let me get it to work and then go home and please stop bothering me with all your stupid things. Exactly. You know, I, I've got Outlook installed on my phone, on my laptop, on my desktop. And uh, every time I have a meeting or something or some kind of task notification, all three of them beep. (laughs) And and they're not even like time synchronized. So it's like one minute, this one goes, and then a minute later, that one goes, and then a minute later, my phone is beeping at me. Is there a way to tell Outlook that you don't want to be notified on like all your devices when they're all in the same room with you? I don't know. I I, I no longer have to use Outlook. and Although I actually kind of like Outlook, and in a way I'm kind of glad too, because I just feel like Outlook does too much for me. Those uh, where did I see this news.ycom? These these one of these Y Combinator startups make a little app that that watches what you're doing and tells you how much time you spend in Facebook and and how much time you spend reading news and stuff like that. Is it the one named X O B N I? That no, that's a different thing. That just tells you who you're emailing a lot of. 
Okay. Um, but, uh, geez, I'm never going to find this anymore because their search doesn't work so good. Are you going to make fun of me for not trying to pronounce X-O-B-N-I or whatever it's called? <laughs> oh, it's totally Zobni, man. Well, yeah. Zobni, Zobni, Zobni. Procrastinate that. Why don't they have search on, on, on news that? Anyway, one of the startups does this thing where it tells you uh, at the end of the week you spent six hours this week just just reading Reddit or whatever, and uh, and they've actually I guess been accumulating this data and they released um, statistics, some statistics about what their um, particularly geeky audience um, spends their time on on the computer and and Outlook was ridiculously high on the list. Uh, and it sort of combines websites. It doesn't say like you spent this time in Internet Explorer. It actually knows what website you were on, you were at. Mm-hmm. So. The top ones were like uh, Google Reader, uh, Reddit, uh, Outlook, um, uh, Word and Excel were very high up there. I was surprised at how much – I think Outlook was at the very top. I was surprised at how much time people spend in Outlook. Yeah. (gasps) Wait. I know why that is. (laughs) I just figured that out because every friggin' time you have a task, Outlook launches this little reminder window, and that comes to the front and gets the focus. And so it probably thinks that every time so – you, so you go to the bathroom or something. You come back, and there's this little notification on your screen that's been there for however long you were at a meeting or in the bathroom or whatever telling you that it's time for that meeting or to go to the bathroom or whatever it is that you just did. And, and all that time, I thought you were using Outlook when really – well, actually, I don't really know how their, how their app calculates it. I, I've seen sites like that where you sort of opt in and it keeps track of sort of what you're doing yeah. uh, for a variety of different reasons. But it is definitely interesting. And to me, you know, the browser, I mean, is by far the number one app that I'm using all the time. I now. think this reveals the business plan of what these people are going to – or what their business plan is. I, I hadn't thought about that. But, like, what's the business plan of somebody that runs a little app that tells you what you're wasting time on so that you can try to spend less time on social news networking websites? Big well, um, or Reddit? Well, it's quite a time – uh, no, I think it's probably if they collect all this data, they can sell that to advertisers uh, to, to, to provide sort of Nielsen ratings like for uh, websites that's actually based on real world data, like how much time was spent on Facebook, how much time was spent on MSN.com or whatever those, those sites may be. They can provide data that's um, sort of like the data that I guess Alexa has this data. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's basically Alexa is what you're describing. And the yeah. problem Alexa has is, is their statistics are kind of a lie because – they only get data back from people that have their little toolbar installed. So you're looking yeah. at a pretty small statistical subset. That's right. And these people will only get data back from the people that installed a little, uh, and that's sort of a problem, yes. Right. I so mean, one thing they could probably do is, yeah, I don't know what they could do. What they could do is they could take a couple of thousand people and pay them to install this thing. Uh, that are s- people that are selected sort of as demographically representative of the United States or whatever demographics you want to get and, mm-hmm. and use that as a um, – I don't know what the statistical term is, but you know, use that to basically baseline, provide like kind of a a baseline. So you can say, all right, well, the people who actually install this little gimmick are all like, uh, you know, they heard about us through Y Combinator, so they're going to spend a lot of time on Reddit and on Y Combinator related sites and stuff like that. So that's all going to be disproportional. But if we can get a thousand people who we pay to install this this sucker, then that can get us sort of an like alignment data that's actually demographically somewhat valid. Oh, yeah, it's basic statistics 101, right? I mean, assuming you have a large yeah. enough sample, the, the, the data is technically valid. So, right. I mean, I, I'm and then not if, sure. if, if all those, if all those, uh, Y comma, if, if all the people that use the data suddenly stop going to Reddit and start going to dig, then, um, you know, they can sort of see if the same thing happens in the statistically accurate sample. 
Right. That must be their business model. So have you been have you been getting any angry emails about the podcast stuff? I'm not sure how much your email you actually read because you I'm sure you get way more than I do. Uh, no, I don't get uh, I don't get angry. Uh, I no. Okay. We didn't. I guess we didn't say anything uh, really controversial. No, but I did right. get. Well, you got in trouble with Paul Graham. We should mention that. Maybe we should. Uh, I did. <laughs> Remember, you got. What did I say? Oh, I, I I talked about his name dropping. Right, and you just made an off the cuff remark that was a little silly. So yeah, you know. So people do listen. I don't know if you read the transcript, but hey, Paul Graham is listening, right? So that's good. I don't um, think he's listening. I'll bet you he has a Paul Graham search at Google, and the transcript showed up on. Somebody typed as soon as somebody typed into the transcript, it came up as a result on Google for Paul Graham, and so Google probably emailed him saying, eh. "Yeah, probably." But Paul, if you're listening to this, send me an email right now saying, "No, I'm actually listening to your podcast because it would be nice to know who that person is that's listening." I would make this a podcast entirely devoted to talking yes. to Paul Graham. Now I know we're not um, uh, letting people ask questions through email, but I did get one email that was that was uh, kind of plaintive, and I did want to talk about it. It's from sure. Michael Dorfman, and he said, and I quote, um, let's see, a couple of your comments in Stack Overflow podcast number three actually made me feel a bit embarrassed on your behalf. And one of them is about pronunciation, which you made fun of. So Knuth, I guess you, the K is not silent, uh, as Michael points out, so it's actually Knuth, which I, I don't know how I would know that. Um, also, the, <laughs> that yes. I don't know the difference between computer science and software engineering, which I, I don't think there should be this big divide. Maybe I'm just an idealist. I think that it's all about what you do in the world. Part of it's computer science. Part of it's you know where the rubber meets the road. So I think that's semantics on some level. Um, no, but I mean these do these words do have meanings in academic departments specifically. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's this. True. Yeah, it's not like the difference between oh, so at Yale they have an English department, they also have a comparative literature department, mm-hmm. and the reason they have a comparative literature department is that the English department wouldn't wasn't giving tenure to any Jews. They had to make another department because they couldn't get the senior professors in the English department to hire Jews. This was like in the fifties. I see. So, so they have two departments that basically do the same thing. I see. So Michael was very, very concerned that I didn't have a strong enough background in computer science. Um, yeah. So one of his recommendations was the SICP, which is Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. Oh, oh that great book. Oh, man. Yes. And see, Joel loves it, Michael, so I just <sighs> want you to know. <laughs> At least half of this is legitimate, right? So. Yeah. Uh, I will admit I'm, I'm I'm something of a hacker. Like to me, my blog is my outlet for actually researching computer science-y related things, and and some of it's truly related. Like washing a keyboard is not computer science, but it's interesting to me, right? Because all the stuff is interesting to me, and and that's really what my blog was was me setting down and having sort of some kind of study time about my profession. Um, it wasn't necessarily reading. Looking at all us. <laughs> it was reading the art of computer programming, right? By by Knuth. Thank you very much. Um, but it, Michael was very concerned. It was a very nice email. It wasn't in any way uh, mean or anything. I mean, he. But I, I think I think it's what you talked about, which is people are seeing different aspects of uh, uh, of you as a sort of internet personality beyond what they get from reading your. Website. Absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 why I like the podcast. And I'm glad that and, people now realize that I actually have no idea what I'm talking about. That's good. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad that people are, are getting that. Yeah. I am truly I, just a guy. Oh, also, uh, to those of you who read my website, it's a joke, okay? <laughs> those are jokes. They're supposed to be funny. Okay, got that off my chest. Do you, do you have a lot of people not understanding your jokes and emailing you about whether yes. you're actually joking? Is that a real problem? Uh, 
Well, no, I mean, if it, a lot of times they just don't get that it's supposed to be funny. I see. Is it because they're from a different culture, or they just have no sense of humor? They have no, they have no humor. But if you if you challenge them with that, they would say, "I have a sense of humor. Of course, I have a sense of humor. But that's just not funny." <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's important to try, though. I, I would rather have a site that's trying to be funny and somewhat failing than one that's totally dry. I mean, that's absolutely not really much of a trade-off there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So no questions this week. I, th- I couldn't remember. We don't have any? Uh, yeah, no, we didn't have any good ones. Okay. I'm sorry. That's going to be insulting to the one person who sent in a question. Um, <laughs> it was a little rambly, so shorter next time. But uh, <laughs> if you do have questions, please uh, record them, email them to us, or just things things you want us to talk about. You know, we're, we're, we're until until we start getting, you know, for the next, what did you say, six to eight podcasts, Yes. Uh, uh, we're not going to have that much to talk about about Stack Overflow per se. We'll, we'll have some, but it's not going to be enough for the whole hour, certainly. Yeah. So if you had any suggestions of stuff that you just want us to rant about or you want to get one of our opinions on or both of our opinions on, or if you can think of something that we might have widely divergent opinions on, that would be especially good. So record it using the little microphone on your computer and send that file to podcast at stackoverflow.com. That's podcast, B-O-D-C-A-S-T, at stackoverflow.com, and, uh, and we'll put it on next week. Give us something to talk about. Yeah. Anything else? No, I think. Oh, keyboards! You know the keyboards and the dishwasher thing. There's two things I want to tell people. One, if you have uh, a piece of electronics and you spill like coffee or a soft drink on it, and or whatever, like your laptop, you spill a bunch of milkshake on it. The first step is to immediately remove all sources of electricity so things don't get shorted out. Take out the battery and unplug it. And the second step is to just start rinsing the heck out of that thing. Just put it under the water and rinse it really, really well. And the third step is to let it dry for a really, really long time, like a, a week. Uh, and that's that's the way to uh, – people don't realize that you can rinse electronics as long as the power source is removed. Uh, and that's the best way to get all that gunk out of there. And, and once they dry, they'll be good as new. So you've actually done this? Uh, regularly, yeah. So that's the, that's the thing to do wow. if, if just like, like, like a, you get a mess on your keyboard or, or in your computer itself. Uh, just rinse it, and, and if you can take it apart so that you get be- kind of better access and those things dry, you know, the, if you if you can take it into t- take it apart in two or three places, uh, the the water is going to evaporate faster, so it'll dry faster. You won't have to wait the full week. But um, that, in general, that's the that's the way to salvage electronics. And and um, you know, I don't take responsibility if you ruin your electronics, but this is the best way to try to salvage them if you do spill something on them. Good. Second thing is this is a bizarre story. I just have to tell this. I, I don't. I don't. I can't believe that this worked. I had a friend uh, call me up, uh, who's not very savvy with computers, and every time she tried to go run Internet Explorer, she got these really strange error messages about things not being installed and just just really bizarre, like this kind of stuff that you've never heard of. And when you search for it on uh, on the internet, the error messages made no sense and. It was obviously like a, some kind of a weird – I mean I, I very quickly determined that it was a hardware problem because it was sort of inconsistent. And um, She had spent several hours on the phone with Dell trying to get them to talk through how to fix it, and they had not recognized it as a hardware problem. They had assumed that it was the software problem. Um, and what it probably was is just a memory that wasn't like totally well-seated. Uh, so after completely giving up, I just had no idea how to fix her computer, and I couldn't get her on Copilot because she couldn't even download and run a program because Internet Explorer didn't even launch. Uh, I, I, I suggested for some reason, I said, pick up the laptop five inches off the table and drop it straight, flat onto the table. And I'm not sure why I suggested that. I guess I had heard that somewhere, that sometimes what happens is that the laptop falls five inches. It's not bad for the laptop. I mean, they're designed to fall three or four feet without 
significant damage. Uh, and if there are any chips on the motherboard that aren't fully seated, the laptop stops, the chips continue, and it sort of drives those chips in place. That's very so old school. I remember that from a really early computing story. I want to say the Osborne. Oh, man. But keep going. Yeah, yeah. So I said, just measure five inches. Hold it up with both hands very carefully over a very hard surface, exactly five inches, and just drop it as suddenly as you can and as straight as you can. And that fixed it, and it's been fixed ever since. Is that bizarre or what? I didn't even think it was going to work. I just thought it would be fun because <laughs> fig- it couldn't hurt her computer to drop it five inches, and uh, you know, it would, might save me a trip to Brooklyn. Yes. Did it actually work? Like, did it work? Yeah. Oh, yes. it did. Okay. And she's like, okay, now what do I do? And I'm like, okay, reboot. Wow. And just try all those things. She's like, oh, my God, everything works. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is crazy. I don't believe it. She's like, no, really, it works. And I'm like, you're just being nice to me. She's like, no, it totally works now. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, I'm coming to your house tomorrow. So give me a call if it still works after the, you know, after a day or two. And it's, uh, yeah, it still works. Nice. Well, so well last minute, if you're having hardware problems with a laptop, don't blame me if this doesn't work, but try the five-inch drop-to-desktop solution. It might work. And I can tie this back into the beginning. I mean, the Fonz would just hit it, right, and make it work. That's what the Fonz does. So That's right. And that's why, yeah, that in the old days, people would just hit the TV and it would fix it because something would, would seat. All right. Well, uh, that's the end of uh, Stack Overflow podcast number six, number five, five. Number five. We need a counter. We need an official counter. Yes. I Thanks five. for listening. Uh, please send us something to talk about for next week, suggested areas of controversy, um, things that we can fight about. Um, jokes that we can tell, etc. Uh, Stack Overflow at podcast.com. Thank you very much. Yep. Bye. 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 All right. Now, how do I turn off the recording?